the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon. Tuesday the 9th it is, and just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to a new edition of Lifeline. Trust you're having a good week, and as we lead off today's program, we got a pretty jam-packed show for you today. We're going to tell you more about what's coming up later on, a bit later on, but Let's lead off tonight with the top story that seemingly everybody is talking about. The decision handed down yesterday, President Trump nominating federal appeals court judge Brent Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. In a primetime speech that the White House delivered last night, Trump said the 53-year-old Kavanaugh has impeccable credentials and is committed to equal justice under the law. It is my honor and privilege to announce that I will nominate Judge Brett Kavanaugh, to the United States Supreme Court. Judge Kavanaugh has impeccable credentials, unsurpassed qualifications, and a proven commitment to equal justice under the law. He is considered a judge's judge, a true thought leader among his peers. He is a brilliant jurist with a clear and effective writing style universally regarded as one of the finest and sharpest legal minds of our time. This incredibly qualified nominee deserves a swift confirmation and robust bipartisan support. The rule of law is our nation's proud heritage. It is the cornerstone of our freedom. All right. And with that announcement, it begs one big question, of course, as we head into the hearings, and that is, will he receive that swift confirmation and robust bipartisan support, as the president is calling for, or will he experience, well, a page out of history written by Robert Bork, a former Supreme Court nominee. With some insights, we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, for more insights. Brad, great to have you with us. First, your reaction to this Supreme Court nominee. Are you there, Brad? Oh, yes, I am. Ah, there you are. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I thought we had to drop another two bits in the phone. (laughs) Okay, no problem. But uh, overall, I'm very pleased uh, with this uh, nominee. Um, He has a strong foundation for uh, separation of powers, uh, for judicial restraint, for the original intent of the Constitution. He's an originalist. Uh, So he's got some really great foundations uh, that we can uh, rely upon in the future, plus his his track record. He's written 300 opinions plus um, over 12 years on the most uh, heard circuit court in the country, the D.C. Circuit Court. So the overall picture, very positive. Um, he's also been very strong with regard to religious freedom. He wrote a front of the court brief in, fra- in favor of graduation prayer. Uh, our case uh, that we where we defended Pastor Rick 
Warren from Saddleback Church to be able to give the uh, invocation at, the, at a President Obama's inauguration. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, um, he uh, wrote very strongly uh, in favor of uh, of our position, and the other two justices just ruled on standing. He went out of his way to say, "No, it, you know, it's not just standing here. Uh, we need to go one step further, make it very clear that public prayer at public events is constitutional." Period. So that has been really very positive uh, as far as his religious freedom aspects, his respect for the Constitution. Uh, looks very good. Will this nominee potentially have the the same treatment that Neil Gorsuch had? And, and I ask that question because given the battle that it could have been, uh, with all of the angst and animosity going on in the Senate, that could have really turned out to be a huge mess. But seemingly, even the most uh, virile anti-Gorsuch uh, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, nevertheless um, seemed to treat Gorsuch with a degree of respect. And eventually, as we all know, um, he got the nod and is now a member of the Supreme Court. I- is the caliber, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is that the caliber of the candidate is the same. I'm wondering if the fact that he is replacing the so-called swing vote, Justice Kennedy, that's going to end up giving him a much different time in the nomination process than perhaps that of Neil Gorsuch. Yes, uh, I believe there's there's two reasons why we're going to get some more pushback. One is that uh, this is the swing vote that's being replaced, and uh, the court will be moving uh, to be more uh, respectful of the original intent of the Constitution, without question, with uh, him as the replacement, which means less judicial activism, and uh, and instead um, activists will have to rely on the legislature to have laws passed instead of having them dictated through an oligarchy on the Supreme Court. Uh, but that said also, um, Kavanaugh has had uh, some political uh, backgrounds with the George W. Bush administration, for example. He served there in uh, legal capacity, but still he, he served there, and he's dealt with some uh, some issues of a, of a legal political nature. So there's a, um, a little bit more of a of a of a um, aversion to him because of that, but it's irrelevant as far as his credentials and qualifications. But there will be, I think, uh, that will possibly be a factor in uh, the uh, the pushback. I had somebody over lunch say to me yesterday, "Do you think this is going to be Kennedy 2.0?" And I said, "Do you mean uh, Justice Kennedy?" He said, "No." John Fitzgerald, as in the fact that Jack Kennedy, for those that weren't around or don't remember, um, faced a great deal of scrutiny back in the 1960 election simply because he was Roman Catholic. And given the Roman Catholic Church's stand on abortion, I have to wonder whether or not he's going to face the same kind of rude challenges as Jack Kennedy did 60 years ago. Oh, he will. And on the abortion question, that'll be front and center uh, in terms of the questions. Uh, he is very skilled. He knows how to respond to those questions, and uh, I think he'll, he'll sail through that part just fine. But what is disturbing, though, Craig, is the fact that we have had the Senate openly critical and rejecting of candidates for, for judicial positions because of their commitment to their faith as Catholics. That is very, very disturbing uh, to see that at such a high level of government in uh, open public plain view uh, by more than one uh, in the Senate. So that's very alarming, and I, I hope, I think it will be very counterproductive for uh, the, the, the left part of the, of the Senate 
uh, to uh, to go out of their way to um, highlight his Catholicism and commitment to Catholicism as somehow a uh, a handicap and a negative for uh, his qualification. That'd be very very. Uh, disappointing, and I think also uh, in the long run politically foolish. Will Democrats see this as simply a turnabout being fair play? And I, and I pose that question because there's often been cited uh, President Trump's campaign promises that the issue of, of pro-life uh, positions by judges would be sort of the litmus test. And certainly this is a justice, not unlike Neil Gorsuch, who is indeed pro-life, and unabashedly so. I don't think he politicizes his position, but he does stand for life. And I would wonder if now suddenly the reverse litmus test is going to take place, where the the folks on the Democrat side of the aisle are going to say, well, as much as you can have a pro-life litmus test in favor of appointing justices, we're going to have an anti-religion litmus test in in favor of uh, turning justices or appointees down. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I think that's what we'll we'll see attempted to be played here. Um, but you know, Justice Kavanaugh is doesn't come across as as radical. He doesn't come across as a zealot. Uh, he's been very wise to to a great degree to to have great prudence in terms of what he says publicly um, with regard to Roe versus Wade. Once in 2006, he was asked um, if he would re, you know believe thinks Roe versus Wade should be reversed or should it be respected. And he said, well, stare decisis, you know, is established. So I think he was very wise and prudent. I do believe one way or the other uh, he will be leaning pro-life. Let me circle back to one comment that you made with regard to some of his background. We know that he clerked under Justice Kennedy, and I would hope that that would be a point in his favor. But you make reference to, in addition to his work in the uh, George W. Bush White House, um, he also worked under Ken Starr during the Clinton impeachment hearings. Uh, he helped draft some of the documents. Now, let me underscore the fact that he was working under Ken Starr. He is not Ken Starr. But could this potentially taint his nomination in the viewpoint of Democrats that remember what that time was like? Yeah, it, it could. It really could. Now, will they be able to uh, pin him with uh, unethical conduct, you know, uh, like many people are throwing at the Mueller uh, investigation and all that? No, they won't be able to do that because uh, I think they'll find on the record what he did and how he conducted himself was indeed very, very professional, uh, while yet uh, supportive of George W. Bush and, and, and what they were pursuing. So they may te- they may attempt guilt by association, but the likelihood is that there's not going to be any there there. Right. He, he is very brilliant, very principled. Um, he, he is a justice who uh, will put the, the law and original tenant constitution above uh, you know, seeking a, a certain result. Uh, he won't do that. Sotomayor has been very guilty of that uh, since she's been uh, sitting on the bench, you know, looking for outcomes um, and then justifying them. He will be the opposite in that regard. He'll be um, looking at the law, looking at the facts, objectively applying it, very procedural. And I think that in the long run, Americans will uh, respect him uh, tremendously, as, as uh, even if they don't uh, agree necessarily with the results that come out at the end of the day. Counselor, final question for you. This has already been cited by the opposition, and that is his 
position on so-called presidential impunity, the notion that a president should not have to stand trial or be brought under indictment while seated in office. And there's good reasons for that, not least of which is the kind of, uh, shall we say, distraction that all of that creates, although then you would argue what's the point of having impeachment rules if, in fact, we don't want to do that. Um, Some are already saying, aha, there you go. There's the reason why. President Trump selected this guy because of his position on presidential impunity. Well, what, what is your observation in relationship to that? Yeah, um, I, I think Judge Kavanaugh has it has it right. Many many scholars uh, support that position constitutionally, uh, in that a, the ability for criminal charges to just be brought against a president could greatly handicap and hinder his ability to do his job. Now, if there is something that is dastardly, to quote Kavanaugh, uh, then there is a remedy in the Constitution. And it's called impeachment. So there is a procedure there that is uh, well in place, and uh, his position is not uh, extreme and radical. It's actually something that has been uh, looked upon and respected, really, by jurists from both sides of the aisle. And ironically, in over 200 years, while we've had some presidents who have engaged in a bit of nefarious behavior, both uh, during and after their tenure uh, in the uh, the Oval Office, it's never risen to the level where a president was actually impeached and removed from office. We've had people resign. We've had people, like in the case of Bill Clinton, be impeached, but never impeached and removed from office. It would have to be then a pretty serious level of high crimes and misdemeanors before that would ever come into play, I would imagine. Yes, and I, I, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, uh, I believe his position is uh, is very reasoned and uh, very actually very widely accepted. Uh, so I, I think that's they're, they're grasping for straws. Uh, if that's the best the, the officers can come up with, they're, they're going to be in trouble, and I think they will be in trouble. Uh, finding, try to find something uh, substantive. Yeah. In the meanwhile, of course, we're all going to strap our seatbelts on firmly because we know one way or the other, as we head into the midterm elections in November, we're going to be in for a wild ride, methinks, on this confirmation. Brad yeah. Tagus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Counselor, as always, we appreciate your time and insights. We're not going to drop this topic quite yet. We're going to talk about some more of the religious implications of it all and certainly the moral implications of the opportunity opportunity potentially to seriously look at Roe versus Wade. We'll talk about that with religion and culture expert Dr. Alex McFarland coming up in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. While seemingly conservatives and certainly strict constitutionalists seem pleased with the decision by the president to pick this particular candidate, Brett Kavanaugh, for the U.S. Supreme Court. That is not a universally held opinion. Activists today queuing up in New York City against President Trump's nomination, as James Flippin reports. My choice. They carried signs with messages like, a woman's place is in your face. Former city council speaker Melissa Mark Viverito says she'll put her body on the line to oppose the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. And if we have to go into the halls of Congress and disrupt Disrupt! Disrupt! We will do that! Candidate for Governor Cynthia Nixon held up a coat hanger and said if a conservative court overturns Roe v. Wade, abortions won't go away. We must never, ever go back to a time when any woman feels that she has to make this kind of a choice. At Union Square in Manhattan, 
James Flippin, NBC News Radio. Wow. Now you talk about lack of respect for rule of law. So if you don't get your way, you're going to go and disrupt the halls of Congress in order to make your point. Well, I, I guess in the view of some, that's the American way. Let's get some insights deeper in to not just the cultural, but also the spiritual aspects of what appears to be on the line here. There's been so much talk and emphasis of the question of whether or not there would be an opportunity to overturn the historic 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which made abortion legal in America. What of that implication and the over-resounding question related to the kind of choices that a middle-of-the-road potential Supreme Court member would need to make with Potentiality, what, at the age of 53, to be a member of the high court for maybe up to as many as three decades? Dr. Alex McFarland joins us now. He is religion and culture expert, director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. He has a business card that's continued on two full sides. (laughs) And I, Dr. McFarland, always great to have you with us. Well, it's an honor to be on with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a bit about uh, your take on this nominee. I I asked my previous guest, Brad Dacus, the question that was posed to me at lunch yesterday, and that was, number one, do you think that this particular nominee, Brent Kavanaugh, may suffer from the Kennedy effect, uh, not related to the Kennedy that he is potentially replacing, but rather that of former President John Kennedy, who took a great deal of flack simply because he was a strong Roman Catholic. Now, I don't know in 2018 that anybody is necessarily worried about Pope Francis driving decisions made in the United States Supreme Court through Brent Kavanaugh, but the notion of one's faith guiding one in making decisions, particularly when they are very moral decisions, is certainly a very valid question. What do you think about that? Oh, great question. Well, Craig, you know, um, the left is very selective in its tolerance, and selective tolerance is intolerance. Uh, A few days ago, uh, Dick Durbin from Illinois said that if the nominee was Amy Barrett, um, she would need to be opposed because, quote, she's a faithful Catholic, end of quote. That, in other words, her Catholicism would be a problem had she been the nominee. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Sotomayor is also a Roman Catholic. And I guess the question would be, and, and Brett Kavanaugh is a Catholic as well, why is Sotomayor's Catholicism not a problem, but Barrett's and Kavanaugh's Catholicism is a problem? Uh, well, the selective um, tolerance of the left is because um, Catholicism or any religion in name only with no moral convictions, that's not a problem. But if a person is uh, a person of faith and conviction and acts on those convictions, and presumably um, uh, Kavanaugh would be, with his legal background and, and his, his Catholic faith, a person who believes in natural law, what Jefferson would have called either self-evident truth or natural rights. Uh, and Jefferson was clear, the foundation of our natural rights is God. By the way, JFK, in his 1961 inauguration speech, JFK said we must remember that the rights of man come from uh, God, not the government. Kennedy said the role of government is not to give you rights, but to guard the rights you inherently have from God. Um, they are so nervous 
at the prospect of anyone who has moral convictions um, because we know so much of what is going on in our country right now is is immoral. And so the left uh, bristles at the idea that there would ever be a return to an America where we have ethical boundaries and, and moral convictions. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot we can talk about, but uh, the Catholicism uh, doesn't matter to the left as long as it's not a Catholicism that births within you any moral convictions or ethical actions. Well, and it's an interesting observation because, for example, one of the things that we have heard repeatedly since Justice Kennedy announced that he would retire at the end of July, and that was the notion that historically of recent years, he has certainly been the so-called swing vote between the right side of the court and the left side of the court. The presumption being that with Kennedy out of the court and a replacement by what surely would be a conservative justice by President Trump, that that would naturally swing the vote more toward the right, and therefore immediately the left has lobbed on to the idea that this automatically means the end of Roe versus Wade. Now, let me uh, sort of uh, with full transparency say here that were that the case, I would be celebrating uh, big time. I don't know yeah. that that's going to happen anytime soon, and I don't know how realistic it is to suggest that the minute, let's say, he gets, uh, he does get confirmed, and uh, Kavanaugh is now on the court, that immediately there's going to be a case that would make its way to the court that would be a constitutional question related to this issue of abortion that may potentially cause them to make a decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, aside from maybe the notion of the state's rights question. I don't see that this is an immediate pending threat, so as much as we might be hopeful that this would happen, I don't know that the hoopla or the paranoia being ex- demonstrated or, or exerted by the left is necessarily all that valid on this topic, do you? Sure. Exactly. I mean, you could have nine James Dobsons sitting on the Supreme Court, and that doesn't mean that Roe v. Wade would automatically be scratched. I mean, there would have to be a case and legal protocols that would lead uh, the court in that direction. But but I will say, honestly, and, and I've, it's been my privilege to share this on your program, and I've said it in literally hundreds of locations. And by, by the way, for what I'm about to say, when I've given a lecture like this, on God and government. Um, I was in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was in Birmingham, Alabama. I was in Amarillo, Texas. In all three of those places, um, district attorneys came up who were in the audience and said, this is a message that has to be heard. So what I'm about to say is this. Uh, We as a country, if we hope to preserve the U.S. Constitution, we have got to return to a point where it is culturally and legally uh, acceptable to recognize moral truth. Uh, I loved, in fact, I was almost a little bit emotional the other night when the president, in his um, speech to announce his Supreme Court nominee, the president said that the role of the justices is to preserve the, quote, the crown jewel of our republic, the U.S. Constitution. And, and I literally applauded because the president is right. One of the great things that makes America different, and we have been such a, a fortunate nation in this regard, 
we have a constitution and bill of rights that is pure brilliance. I mean, in fact, Craig, I, I honestly do believe God himself presided over the, the founders' writing of that constitution. Interestingly, in May of 2012, during Arab Spring, when uh, uh, it was in the news that Egypt might write a new constitution, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, and this is easily documentable, look online. She said, if you're going to write a constitution, don't look at ours. Wow. Well, wow. she did. She said that. And, I, you know, I was in many media interviews. And I said, uh, you know, she gets a paycheck for defending our Constitution, yet very glibly in the press denigrates it. Uh, so we have got to remember, look, our Declaration, Constitution, and Bill of Rights really doesn't make any sense in a moral vacuum. When, when we um, broke from Great Britain and we talk about securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, um, and all persons are endowed with certain inalienable rights. In other words, you can't legitimately take those rights away. Our rights can be obstructed and hindered, but not legitimately so. They are inalienable. They are given by God. And by the way, Dr. King, when he led the Civil Rights Movement, he predicated the legitimacy of the Civil Rights Movement on natural law. Human beings are made in God's image. And therefore, they have certain rights, and the role of government, and yes, the role of the U.S. Supreme Court, is not to manufacture rights. The role of the court is not to insert rights that the loudest pack demands. No, the, the role of the court is to guard the rights you have from God. You don't take away the rights or add to the rights, plus nothing, minus nothing. And so we, uh, part of the reason that natural law has been suppressed, people like Hillary Clinton and Barbara Boxer, Dianne Feinstein, the left, have worked so hard to suppress the knowledge of moral truth is because we are aborting babies, and that creates within the heart of people turmoil. Now, let me say this. Psychologists will tell you humans cannot live forever in a state of cognitive dissonance. Uh, truth will change your behavior, or your behavior will cause you to try and change truth. We are, though, though you might not realize it amidst all the white noise in the media, part of the reason that Kavanaugh's moral philosophy terrifies the left, or Amy uh, Barrett, uh, is because they don't want there to be transcendent moral truth, because that would cause us to have to admit that murdering unborn humans is wrong. We know it's wrong, so what do we do? Do we change our behavior? No, we're trying to suppress our beliefs. But our Constitution cannot be legitimately, logically defended or preserved in a moral vacuum. That's why Jefferson said, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can we think those liberties are secure when we've removed from the culture the only firm basis for our liberties? That is God. 
You know, there's an interesting thought here, too, that you mentioned, uh, Dr. McFarland, as we talk about the importance of Supreme Court nominees. And we said this even leading up to the election a year and a half ago, two years ago, that this would be a pivotal time with as many as three at the time octogenarians on the high court. Uh, I found that clip. and, And here's exactly speaking on television in Cairo to an Egyptian audience. This is what a member of the United States Supreme Court, who has been sworn to uphold the Constitution of the United States, has to say about that Constitution in relationship to using it as a yardstick for other young emerging democracies. Drafting a Constitution in the year 2012. I might look at the Constitution of South Africa. That was a a deliberate attempt to have a fundamental instrument of government that embraced basic human rights, had an independent judiciary. It's, it, it really is, I think, a, a great piece of work that was done. Um, much more recently than the U.S. Constitution, the, uh, Canada has a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, dates from 1982. You would almost certainly look at the European Convention on Human Rights. So, yes, why not take advantage of what there is elsewhere in the world? And the one gun I thought I had that cut. Let me see if I've got... That was a a deliberate... Let me just go back here. You should certainly be aided by all the Constitution writing that has gone on since the end of World War II. I would not look to the U.S. Constitution if I were drafting a Constitution in the year 2012. There's the line. And then she goes on to cite South Africa, which, by the way, has been in such economic and racial turmoil. That country is an absolute disaster area right now. And to to point to Canada or the European Union, all of whom, by the way, crafted their constitutions following the standard created by the United States Constitution, yet here's a member of the United States Supreme Court on the payroll to defend that Constitution, as Alex McFarland mentioned, saying that in the time of this interview, 2012, during the Arab Spring, that they, she would not recommend using the United States Constitution as guidance for crafting a democratic society in Egypt. Wow! All right, we're going to come back to more of the conversation. You think on that for a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I think it's interesting to know that we're not talking about taking a man who has a political background, putting him in a uniquely political post. He's not running for an office, per se. It is an appointment to the judiciary, the highest judiciary seat in the nation, the United States Supreme Court. And yet the conclusions to which some are jumping are remarkable. Not only seemingly is the future of abortion at stake in America, but according to Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer, even health care is at stake. We Democrats believe the number one issue in America is health care and the ability for people to get good health care at prices they can afford. The nomination of Mr. Kavanaugh would put a dagger through the heart 
of that cherished belief that most Americans have. A dagger through the heart. That's interesting. There's not even yet been the single (laughs) solitary hearing yet, and yet somehow they've concluded that Brett Kavanaugh would put a dagger through the heart of health care in America. I I guess they must have hired an out-of-work Hollywood scriptwriter for that line, Alex McFarland. Well, yeah, you know, it's amazing. Uh, the fallacy of an a priori rejection, apart from experience, uh, they, they don't know. And, you know, within hours of Kennedy's announcement of his, uh, um, you know, retirement, you know, they were already saying they were going to oppose the, the president's nominee. I mean, it could, it, it could be Mother Teresa, the Lord Jesus, or Solomon in all his wisdom, and the left would fight and oppose whomever the president nominated. And I guess the real danger here, and you alluded to this prior to uh, the end of the last break, is the mentality that comes that we have already with some of the existing justices. How critical is this? Well, we heard not from Dr. Alex McFarlane, not from Craig Roberts, but from Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, how much she values the integrity of the United States Constitution. But that should be that should be very troubling to all of us. Do you know, uh, last night I was watching uh, news and re- reading news feeds, and I'm sure you were as well, Craig. Um, and right away, it's funny. All of the special interest lobbyists are saying, Brett Kavanaugh is not going to stand up for uh, technology, is not going to stand up for the environment. He's not going to stand up for this right and that right. And so I wrote a piece, I'm finishing it right now to release, um, because one of the uh, groups that were shouting in outrage um, said, he's not going to stand up for women's rights or the rights of the LGBT. And I thought of this. We don't want, honestly, um, for the long-term good of all people and for the greatest freedom and liberty and prosperity or prospect of prosperity for all people. Look, folks, you don't want a justice that will selectively stand up for the rights of any special special interest group. As a man, I don't want a Supreme Court justice that promises to stand up for male rights. We want a justice that will stand up for the rights of people, all people, not special interest groups. You want a Supreme Court justice that understands the universal, historical, ubiquitous, uh, reality of natural law. That's what prompted the founders to write the Constitution and Declaration and Bill of Rights. That's what's made us the most prosperous nation in history, the greatest engine for human empowerment and freedom and the ability of all people to experience their, their dreams and their destiny. And the best thing possible would be for a justice that's not in the hip pocket of any PAC or special interest group, but one who who rules 
rules by that that moral law written on the heart of all people. Well, and I think going and, back to your comment earlier, the notion that at the end of the day, it's not government that grants rights, it's the government that protects the rights that are granted by very God himself. And so if you have someone like that who is a strict constitutionalist, who is not there to do the bidding of anyone, but simply to make sure that the laws that are passed in this country, decisions that are handed down by lower courts, are in harmony with the original intent of the Constitution and that continues to honor a strict separation of powers, which provides that kind of checks and balances and, and uh, the, the, the ability to, to allow one branch to make sure that another branch doesn't, you know, go hog wild and, and take over the country. Uh, that, that, those are really the two key points here. In any uh, judicial appointment. And so you're right. I think if there was a notion that no matter what, if somebody said they're going to hire a justice going to come in and, and is going to declare that every every company needs to close its doors on Sunday, well, I don't think that we want that either. We want someone that will recognize the neutrality of the Constitution and uphold the Bill of Rights based on the original intent. And I agree with Dr. McFarland's observation that seemingly very God himself must have been guiding them because contrary to the opinion of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there has not before nor since been a constitution, even with its potential flaws, there has not before nor since been a constitution that has defended more freedom, granted more ability to succeed and to be rewarded than any other constitution in the United States and all, or in the world rather, and all the others that have enjoyed degrees of success as well have always modeled themselves after the United States Constitution. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland, religion and culture expert, again with North Greenville University. You can read about his insights online at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you've been watching the numbers, and perhaps you've noticed they're telling a very interesting story. In recent months, we've seen unemployment at some of the lowest numbers in, well, quite frankly, memory. Oil has been up. Stocks remain steady. And we see the Small Business Optimism Index at the second highest level it's been in some 45 years. Wow. Certainly it would seem as if the economy is chugging along on all eight cylinders. But if that be the case, and as we see stocks, again, generally pretty steady, are you poised to take advantage of the trends taking place in the economy? And what role do these trends play in the future security of your family and your retirement? With some insights, we're joined now by a gentleman, a friend, certainly a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's David Mitchell, founder of Tradeway. And David, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Craig. Good to be with you. These numbers certainly have been superlative, and we know there's been a bit of a volatility lately that's crept into the market, certainly much of that surrounding concerns over potential trade wars between the United States and uh, many of our trade partners like Canada, China, the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, from your vantage point, uh, how do you assess the current health of the economy and more specifically what's going on on Wall Street? Well, it's it's excellent. I mean, one thing that you guys uh, need to understand it will really help, and that is that the stock market itself sort of anticipates the the economy. It looks, in other words, it looks out into the future, 
not at today so much. And so sometimes they don't correlate exactly. In fact, they really don't at all, and that's one reason the big boys on Wall Street um, do so well at trading, and sometimes your neighbor doesn't do as well uh, because he thinks the neighbor thinks that the uh, stock market correlates with the present tense in the economy. It really doesn't work that way. Um, but look at it this way. We do know these things are true about the economy. You mentioned some great things there at the start of the show. Uh, we do know that President Trump has cut taxes, corporate taxes, which is huge for the stock market. And um, we know that he is cutting regula- regulatory problems that banks had that, that really hindered business. And by cutting those, that's good for the economy and for the stock market, both. Now, here's here's what's interesting. If you look back at the stock market, if you go back to the day after the election of Donald Trump, from that day up until, oh, January, let's see, I'm going to get you an exact date, uh, January 25th, we had what our company, Tradeway, calls the first year of a new bull market. Now, what's funny about that, Craig, is that Wall Street doesn't say it's a new bull market. They say it's an old bull market, and they just acted as if it was a continuation of everything that happened three to five years prior, which is not really true, but there are reasons why they do it that way. But actually, with the election, the next day after it, a new bull market started, and the first year of a new bull market is different than anything else in the whole cycle because it can go up for 12 months in a row with no corrections. And by a correction, I mean where the market sort of gets wacky and, and tanks a little quite a bit. Maybe, you know, maybe not quite 20%, but it may go down 15% and get kind of volatile for a little bit. And, and the trend stops and it heads down for uh, usually six to eight weeks. Well, the first year of a new bull, it'll, it'll go a whole year without doing that quite often. But then everything changes because after that first year, the second, third, and, say, fourth year of the bull market acts differently. And what we've observed is that normally you'll have about three months of very good, reliable uptrend, and then you'll have a correction. And that correction will last six to eight weeks, which means it moves down and gets kind of volatile. But then after that six to eight weeks period is over, a new uptrend will start, which will last approximately three months, and it goes on and on for the next, for the second, third, or fourth year uh, in general. And then after that, you get into what we call the old tired bull market, which acts entirely differently. But we're not close to that yet, so we'll hold that off for another talk. But right now what we've seen is the, the first year of this bull market, actually that the way it looks, it actually lasted a little bit more than 12 months because it was about 13 and a half, 14 months. And that, that segment ended there on um, January 26, 28, somewhere right in there. And then it really tanked and we had a little correction. Well, sure enough, it lasted about um, between six and eight weeks. And on about um, April the 5th, it started the next section of really reliable uptrend, which if you had a chart of the S&P 500, you could see that. So you can see how smooth and how pretty it is since that date till now. 
And um, when you come to a tradeway meeting, you learn how to draw support and resistance lines and use moving averages to, to kind of know where to put those lines. But um, the, the whole index will bounce up and down between those lines in a real pretty little uptrend for about three months, and then you'll have another correction. So that, that's kind of how you read the stock market part. The economy, you read it perfectly there at the first of the show. It's just doing very well. All the economic numbers look good. And even looking out maybe a year, the market still thinks so, or it wouldn't be uptrending. As we take a look at sort of the ebb and flow of all of this, no doubt many people are wondering, gee, I have a cousin who's done well or maybe a cubicle mate at work. How do individuals and families take advantage of some of these trends? I know for a lot of people whose memories still sting from the events of the downturn back in 2009, for some it seems like an eon ago, for other people they've never even quite recovered. But for for the for those that still remember all of that and say, you know, I, I understand money is to be made there, but I'm not sure how to do it, and I'm concerned about protecting the financial security of my family. What can they learn at a Tradeway seminar? Well, you know, that that is the greatest question, because I think it's a huge mistake when we decide to allow another person to take care of 100% of our total life savings. We don't know that person that well, and he claims to be an expert. I just think that's a terrible mistake. And one of the great goals of Tradeway is to go around the country and to educate people in a fun way, a two-day uh, event uh, so that they can know the language of Wall Street and understand what their financial advisor is even talking about and even by the end of that two days uh, be able to advise your financial advisor and tell him what to do and what not to do so that you don't allow him to lose 25, 35% of your total life savings the next time we have um, a recession. And you, it's not—it's not rocket science. It's just skill sets, and you can easily learn those skill sets at a tradeway event. We'd love to have you come, because a lot of our people that come actually want to learn to trade on their own. But a good byproduct of that is you also learn how to advise your financial advisor, so you don't let him lose thirty-five percent of your total money. There is absolutely no need for that. So you get beyond just the simple mechanics of trading into, quite frankly, a lot of the the philosophy or, better yet, the, the stewardship principles that underscore, that undergird one's investment life and ultimately the, one, the way an individual or family prepares for their financial future. You've got a seminar coming up this Friday and Saturday at the Fremont Marriott, and I'd like you to spend a moment, if you would, David, tell us what this thing is all about, why should people go, and most importantly, how can they get more information to register? All right. Well, uh, a couple of our best teachers are going to be there, Christy and Boyce McLeod, and um, they've been lifelong friends of ours, but also worked in business with us, but... They're excellent stock traders, and and they know our system so well. And they they uh, we we just have everywhere they go in the country, we have huge uh, applause for their abilities at teaching. So they're going to be your teachers this weekend, and I would not miss them. Um, but you know what's going to happen? You you don't really even have to bring a laptop if you if you don't want to. Just come, show up. We'll have workbooks and everything you need there. 
and just sit and enjoy it. Just listen, pay attention. If you've got children that are, say, 10, 12 years old or older, when you get a ticket for $99.95, it includes your whole household. So bring them. They'll love it, especially day two, because it has to do with uh, noticing uh, different patterns and things like that in different stocks. And the, the young people do that better than we do, I think. And so bring them if you want to. And then you'll get a second ticket free just to bring a friend uh, if you want to do that. So. That's what I would say. Just come and remember that 98% of the people in that room are going to be people that don't know one thing about the stock market, and many of them never even owned a business. So we start at ground zero, and we show you why the stock market exists, the language of the market. Uh, we go, as you as you said uh, just a minute ago, Craig, we go into biblical principles. It's the oldest book on the planet that discusses investment and economics and finance and all these things. And so there are many principles in the Bible that are like gravity and they flat work when you operate those principles. And we show you how to incorporate those into your uh, investments, your investing and your trading and so forth. So it's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of hands-on. And it starts at ground zero. And I'll tell you what, if you come and you stay both days and you don't love it, just go to the back table and say, hey, we love you, but this is not for me, and they'll give you that $99 back. So there's nothing to lose there, Craig. I, I just think it's a, it's a great opportunity. And, of course, the information shared can literally change a person's life. So I want to again mention the special two-day event will be this Friday and Saturday at the Fremont Marriott Silicon Valley. And as David mentioned, you can register your entire household for just ninety-nine ninety-five. Plus, you'll receive an extra ticket to bring along a friend or a loved one, and again, with a full money-back guarantee. To register, call toll-free 877-907-TRADE. That's 877 8723, or easier still, go online to tradeway.com. That's tradeway.com and register for this special live two day event called Step One Start Your Journey again this Friday and Saturday at the Fremont Marriott Hotel. Register online at tradeway.com or call toll free 877 907 TRADE. That's 877 907 T R A D E. David Mitchell, founder and CEO of Tradeway. David, we appreciate the time. Look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Thank you, Craig. We'll see you next time. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.